Welcome to the podcast that shares the views of high-level leaders in the European and global financial services industry. Welcome to Shaping Finance, a podcast which offers a platform to high-level decision makers and shapers in international finance. My name is Nicolas Maquel. I'm the CEO of Luxembourg for Finance and the host of this podcast. I'm joined today by Lawrence Boone, Chief Economist at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD. This is an international organization that was set up after the Second World War to help distribute the Marshall Plan funds. But obviously, up to today, it has morphed itself into a very important economic actor on the international sphere. And it describes itself today as working to build better policies for better lives. More on this in a minute. Before joining the OECD in 2018, Laurence was the chief economist at AXA, one of the world's largest insurance companies and investors. Besides other positions in the world of finance for major firms like Barclays and Merrill Lynch, Laurence has also served as special advisor to the French president. Furthermore, she has been active in academia, teaching at different elite schools in France and authoring numerous articles. Laurence holds a PhD in Applied Econometrics from London Business School. As you can see from this very impressive resume, she is quite the right person to discuss what the financial industry can expect from 2021. Welcome, Laurence, to Shaping Finance. Thank you, Nicolas. Thanks for this very kind introduction. Laurence, the OECD has set itself, and I quote, the goal to shape policies that foster prosperity, equality, opportunity, and well-being for all. Through what concrete actions do you at the OECD help bring these ambitions to the reality of our economies and to the life of citizens? Um, so, as, as you say, the OECD ambition is really to use the best policy analysis and experiences of its member states to provide recommendations to all of them on the best policies to achieve higher growth, higher welfare and sustainability. And that's obviously a concern for finance as well. Um, so we draw basically on almost 60 years of experience and insight into our member states, um, deep discussion and analysis with them to prepare, you know, what's needed for the world, I, I would say, of tomorrow, post-COVID. Um, we work on establishing evidence-based international standards and finding solutions to a wide range of social, economic, environmental challenges. What we try to do is provide advice to improve economic performance, uh, foster job creation, fight international tax evasion. And as you know, it is a unique forum of like-minded members uh, who share knowledge for data analysis, experiences, best practice, and advice on public policies. And here in the economic department, which I lead, we're sort of a hub of all the analysis of the house. Uh, we identify areas for reforms, which could address, you know, short term, medium term and long term challenges. 
and political economy. And obviously, we also provide projections for the global economy in the twice yearly economic outlook. And the last one was released on the 1st of December. And we will certainly come back to this economic outlook and you will uh, give us some of the main elements. But before that, the COVID crisis is currently raging not only through Europe, but also the US and other parts of the world. What scars will the pandemic have left in the economies of your member countries? And how will the economies of industrialized uh, countries recover from the current slump? So, as you say, I think there will be some scars. Um, as you know, we now have vaccines in sight, but uh, it will take between 6 to 12 months for vaccines and other public health policies to actually put a hold uh, to the virus or keep it in check. And in the meantime, some restriction will persist. Um, there will be on some sectors that you know, leisure, tourism, hospitality, everything that involves human-to-human interaction. So what that means is not only 2020 was the, you know, a terrible recession of more than 4%, uh, but in 2021, the recovery cannot be full. It has to be partial just because restrictions on mobility and movement of people will continue. So what... Uh, that will inevitably have some effects on unemployment, uh, firm failure, in spite of all the policies that have been deployed since the beginning of the crisis. And let me say that we've been super impressed by the efficiency, the speed and the magnitude of the policy support uh, for the economy during this crisis. But it's not the end of it. We will need to continue throughout 2021 can continue buffer the shock and limit uh, the scaring effect. One of the things we worry the most about um, is how much this will increase inequality. As you know, a significant proportion of, of the support that was provided to people has been saved on the margin, which we can understand, and that has gone massively to higher income households with a lower marginal propensity to consume. Conversely, and the sectors which are the most affected have the highest concentration of low-skilled people, precarious contract, uh, low-paid workers. And they had usually to use their saving or get more indebted. So this is something we had seen before the crisis, which, you know, was already having an impact on our economies and, and economic policies. And this is likely to be stronger after the crisis. Um, so there is inequality. Um, also, we are seeing, you know, those sectors being more affected than the others. And when we look at past crises, um, unemployment continues to rise, bankruptcies continue to rise throughout a couple of years after the trap in GDP. So we're going to see that uh, ahead of, of us and we will have to deal with this and the consequences of this. And finally, but not last but not least, um, many emerging market economies have been hit particularly hard by the pandemic. Uh, some of them had high private or public debt, limited fiscal space, or significant exposure to debt denominated in foreign currency. 
we know that the IMF had to intervene and to quite a large extent for supporting these countries. We also know that a lot of them have difficulty raising funds uh, on market. It's super important, actually, uh, that the international community uh, take care and addresses the issues of the less advanced economies. Um, we wouldn't want a financial crisis after the economic and health crisis. And COVID-19 has accelerated several phenomena that were already ongoing. One of them might be the deglobalization of our economies, or is the recent signature of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership between 15 countries in the Asia-Pacific region evidence that news of globalization's demise was maybe premature? So I think I, I agree with you. Um, I, I'm not very convinced about um, the arguments of deglobalization, but, but there will likely be changes to globalization. Some of those changes will be regional. Some of them will be that uh, policymakers will pay more attention to the fallout of globalization, you know, what it means for people in their local constituencies. But I think globalization is here to say, and by the way, it was not the you know, there was not the consequence, the virus was not the consequence of globalization. Often we talk about the issue of masks, but what happened is there was a global surge in demand that was massive when there was shortage of supply because um, never had we imagined that we would need that many masks. And, and I think what that reflects is we need a lot more uh, attention on resilience, you know, on, on what we call just in case instead of just in time. So resilience rather than not so much efficiency. But globalization is needed first, you know, to solve the crisis. We won't be out of this uh, if vaccines are not deployed throughout the world, not only advanced economies, but also emerging market ones. Um, otherwise, there will be resilience of the virus. It will come back to unhurst, so to speak. So the third thing is this, this is a very concrete action where multilateral institutions can help. The second thing is, you know, you mentioned the regional comprehensive economic partnership, and it's actually very good news. It will help trade flow much more freely among 15 member countries, and that will support growth in all of Asia. And it's good news for them, but I think it's also good news for the world because they contribute an increasing share to global growth, more than one third in our current projection. And so that's good news for them, good news for us. And then there are a couple of challenges which we will not be able to address without globalization and multilateral institutions. Think about the environment and climate change, for example. Or think about, you know, a fair taxation updated for the digital age. As you know, the OECD is working on an agreement with 137 countries uh, to ensure that profits are being taxed more where the customers are located, which obviously um, is, um, is more complicated in, in the digitalized environment we live in. That could bring about $100 billion globally, and I'm sure there's a lot of good news that we can think of for this, for this money. So not only I don't think it's, it's past us, but I think it, it really can help on a number of topics. 
And another trend that has certainly been accelerated by the current crisis is that of uh, sustainable finance. Our economies need to transition to a more sustainable growth. Is the financial industry embracing sustainability fast enough to help bring this about by helping to finance this transition? What would be needed to ensure a more rapid mainstreaming of sustainable finance products and thus a more rapid transition towards a sustainable growth? So that's, I, I think that's a super exciting topic. Um, and we can see how much and how fast things are actually changing. We have, and you know, we collect this sort of evidence. So we have growing evidence that financial institutions and markets are really embracing forms of sustainable finance, and in particular, uh, ESG investing. Central banks, supervisors, they all seem the need to assess climate risks, to stress test exposures of banks, pension funds, insurers for potential losses, controlling asset values, which would be due to physical and climate transition risks. So there is increasing concern and people are, are really paying a lot more attention and acting on it. Having said that, uh, the assessments we do at the OECD find that, you know, if there has been a rapid adoption of ESG investing in recent years, it's fair to say that ESG disclosures and metrics like consistency, comparability and transparency across the world. So what we are trying to push at the moment is more focus uh, to ensure that financial markets can contribute to a northerly transition to low carbon economies and that all companies, institutions who embark on the path to reducing their carbon footprint uh, also find the capital available to invest in this transition. Let, let me suggest... Um, a few things, what, what I think we need to see and what we are trying to push, three points on this. The first is improvement in ESG metrics and methodologies. And uh, what we want is to ensure that investors can assess the financial and environmental significance of environmental pillar scores under ESG in a consistent way. Which is why in the second, we are working on the development of more precise and transparent tools to invest in the transition from climate indices and climate transition funds to wider use of wind bonds. And lastly, you know, we are fostering the monitoring and verification of efforts against climate transition plans. I think we think this will be very important to limit greenwashing. And, and on your side, and just to conclude on this, institutional investors, we think, need to engage with boards to ensure that transition plans yield tangible results to reduce carbon intensity. So something to look forward to in uh, 2021. Another issue that uh, has arisen with the crisis is that of global debt, which saw uh, unprecedented levels being reached this year in response to the pandemic. Should this worry financial markets in the long term, as this could be unsustainable? Will we see a return of austerity as countries try to bring back debt uh, to more normal levels? Or have we indefinitely moved the goalposts into new territory? Um, so let me 
Let me share our view on this. Um, the first one is, you know, we need this vehicle support um, today. We needed it uh, in 2020. We will need it uh, also in 2021, which was um, the point I made for the projections. The second point is we needed to support, sorry, to support the jobs and the firms and avoid a catastrophe uh, while there are some restrictions to economic activity. The second point is we can afford it today, even if we have much higher debt, uh, sovereign debt than was the case in 2014, interest payments on public debt across the OECD in general much lower today than they were back in 2014. And this is obviously due to record low interest rates, but uh, what's worth saying is that we also expect central banks um, and markets to to keep rates at different maturity very low for some time, given the huge slack in the economy and a very subdued outlook for inflation. It's super important that we don't repeat the mistakes of the previous crisis and we consolidate too quickly, which is why we're insisting on this and on the fact that the exit um, from governments for this um, higher debt that plans for how we are going to look at taxation and spending in the future start today, but that, you know, implementation is clearly not for this year or next year until um, growth has regained more momentum. Now, there's one issue that we are uh, following quite closely, which is um, the corporate debt level and leverage in some countries. You know that in many countries, these have risen to very high level. Actually, they're back to the level we had in 2009, you know, and there, there are some concerns that we have on particularly uh, uh, where forms of market-based financing, such as high-yield debt and leverage loans, which were mostly ineligible for existing government support programs or bond purchases program. So we don't want to minimize those, those concerns. But the one thing I would say in conclusion is that the best medium term way to ensure that sustainability is to boost GDP growth today. And then I think we need to do it wisely and with targeted measures to make sure that, you know, when we step back and investors will look at sovereign debt and corporate debt, they will ask where the money has gone and they will have seen that it has gone to strengthen growth and, and institutions. And to stay with investors going forward, what should the financial industry worry about more? Continued low interest rate or maybe a return of inflation? So that's the first question of all. Um, I think, you know, as our central scenario, uh, inflation is unlikely to return with a bang as long as there is less demand than supply in the economy. So there's an employment and some production capacity are not utilized and wages growth remain subdued that uh, and globalization is ongoing. So I think I'm sure we can find cases and we're worried about the pouring liquidity, but so far inflation seems to go into asset prices and not consumer prices. Central scenario as well is based on the continuation of low interest rates to enable both monetary and fiscal policy 
um, to lift growth. Doesn't mean that we are blind to, you know, the distortion this may create on the financial market. But first, that people look for more risky assets is a desired effect from these policies. And second, we have a lot of macro prudential tools and supervision, uh, supervisory tools that, that policymakers should use a lot more, monitor very carefully and make sure that, um, I would say financial excesses uh, are kept in check. As we conclude, uh, what book have you recently read that you would like to recommend to our audience? There's actually something which is which dates from the previous um, financial crisis aftermath, but I was rereading them this weekend, and I think uh, all of our your audience would really enjoy it. It's a lot of finance for those who haven't read it. Uh, by Lakwat Ahmed, and it's the story of the 1930s crisis through the life of four central bankers, the US, UK, German, and French one. And I think it's very enlightening about what we are, what we got through, and what we may get through again. Thank you very much, Laurence Boone, for sharing your insights on the economic perspectives with our audience. Thanks also to our listeners who have tuned in again to our podcast. In our next episode, I will have the honor of speaking to Jean-Claude Juncker, former Prime Minister of Luxembourg and former President of the European Commission. If you would like to be up to date and don't miss out on one of our latest episodes, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify and Google. You can also find more information on our website, luxembourgforfinance.com. 